Our scripture today comes from James, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, I don't, I don't know if you noticed this or saw this, there was a first edition of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein put up for auction. And it was an amazing, amazing find. It was printed in January of 1818. Uh, it was anonymously published. So there's actually no name on this edition because that's what um, uh, Mary Shelley was a woman. She didn't want to print her name on the book originally. And it had all the original binding from 1818. Can you imagine? Incredible find. Don't shout it out loud, but think for a minute. How much do you think this would sell at auction? Just get a number in your mind. They were hoping, the owners were hoping for something like two hundred dollars or $300,000. Uh, it sold for over a million. Now, whoever bought that book, I hope they have a better place for it than their coffee table because I don't know where you put a million-dollar book in your home. But here's what's so interesting, right, about this story. <clears throat> that book, okay, that story, the words are available for, for pennies compared to that. You can buy a used version. You can buy a reprint. You can... Download a copy onto your phone uh, electronically, but for the original, okay, for the real thing, that's going to cost you over a million dollars. The real thing is always harder to get, isn't it? It's always harder to get. You want to buy a house? Great. You want to install real hardwoods right now? Good luck. <laughs> okay. You want tequila? Not right now, but in, in theory, right? Good luck finding one made from real agave, right? You're going to have to pay for that these days. <laughs> Don't think too hard about it. <laughs> you like that tuna sushi roll uh, for a few bucks? There's probably very little actual tuna in it. And man, you guys, I looked this up, real coffee. Uh, researchers, uh, they, they analyzed those little packets, those instant coffee packets, that some of you love so much, uh, and they found that they were full of twigs and corn and barley and all kinds of stuff that's not real coffee. If you want the real thing, you're going to have to buy it, you're going to have to grind it, you're going to have to brew it yourself. Okay, the real thing, it's always harder to come by. It requires more work, it requires more effort, more time, more resources. Why do I bring all this up? Real faith is the same way. Real faith is hard to come by. And that's what this uh, series we're in is all about. We're starting a new discussion here on the book of James. Real faith is what is on James' mind as he writes this letter. And, and notice with me, I, what I don't mean is like not real doctrine, not real theology, okay? Not just knowing the right things, okay? That's the easy part. But real faith, like actually trusting God to take care of you every day, submitting every part of who you are and what you have and what you do to him, especially when it seems like 
Your life is crumbling around you. That kind of faith, that's harder to come by, isn't it? But James, as we read his letter, he's going to tell us we can have that. We can have more than right belief. We can have real faith, whole faith. We can actually bring how we act and live and spend our money and how we talk and how we work into alignment with what we say and think we believe about God. Those can be together. We can be whole. We can be the real deal. But it is not easy. And there are lots of imitations available to us. Some even look really, really close. Right? Some are going to offer you, you can have the, the, the fun parts of God, but not the hard parts. You can have the parts that you already agree with, and none of the stuff that you disagree with. Okay? Some of it looks really close. Um, but James gets in our way. If, we're, if we find ourselves tempted today to one of those imitation faiths, James will get in our way, and he will remind us that God is not interested in imitation faith. He's not interested in half-hearted faith. He's not interested in belief that doesn't change behavior. He isn't interested in prayers that don't affect our hearts and our lives. He's not interested in sentimentality that does not change how we behave and how we act. God wants the real deal in us and for us. The question is, is that what we want? Do we want that? And in many ways, that, that is the driving question that we're going to ask every week in James. Do we want real faith? It's the same question James' original readers were asking themselves. Should we, is this whole Jesus thing worth it, or should we settle for something less, but something easier? And James will tell us right now that real faith is worth it, but it requires a reorientation. It requires a renewal process. This is where James begins. A cycle that happens in the life of a believer over and over and over again. If every follower of Jesus, like a rock tumbler. And if we want real faith, we have to submit to that process. And I'm warning you now, it is not easy, but it is good. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of James, use your table of contents if you need to. James chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, James, if you're not familiar, is a letter. It's like Romans or Corinthians or Galatians. It's written uh, for a specific group of people in the early Christian movement in the first century. Uh, and it's written by James, which is why it's called James. Uh, if this is the same James that we read about, for example, in the book of Acts. And this is the same James we heard mentioned in some of Paul's letters. He was an apostle. We know that the risen Jesus appeared to him specifically. We, that's noted in 1 Corinthians 15. He was a pillar, a key leader in the early church and was essentially the top pastor of the Jerusalem congregation uh, after Peter left. We also know that he is the half-brother of Jesus. And as an aside, can you imagine how hard it would be to grow up as the half-brother of Jesus, Right? Mary and Joseph are like, you know, Jesus never talks to us like that, James. <laughs> and I mention this almost every time I, I, I talk about James, but, but I mean this. James's faith, he comes to faith in Jesus, and he dedicates his life to serving Jesus' kingdom and his people. And if that isn't the strongest apologetic for the divinity of Jesus, I don't know what is. I mean, what would it take for you to believe your sibling was the chosen one of God. It would take a lot of evidence, wouldn't it? 
Um, so James, he's a pastor in Jerusalem. And we know from the book of Acts in chapter 11, we know that pretty quickly after the church was born at Pentecost, that, that they began to experience persecution. So Jews were coming to faith in Jesus uh, and other Jews were persecuting them for blasphemy, for, for worshiping Jesus as Messiah, uh, risen from the dead. And so early on, many of these Jews, they scatter across the region. They leave Jerusalem uh, to, to avoid persecution. James is writing to them. This is why in verse 1, he calls them the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Okay, these are people who've, who've run away and they've lost everything. And that sometimes it's hard for us to put our mindset where they would be. But think about, they were refugees. They were on the run. They left behind homes and businesses and friends and family and relationships because of their faith in Jesus. And no doubt, that hardship, that difficulty, that pain was tempting them to give up. No doubt. To return to Jewish life and worship Right? They, that was how easy that would be for them to smudge the Jesus part out of their faith and to get back to their lives as normal. How much easier that would be. But then they get this letter from James. And here's what he says to remind them what real faith is. Okay, what it looks like in this moment for them. This is verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Imagine that. It's like, James, you know we're struggling. This is how you want to lead. It's just, <laughs> hey, it's hard, I know, but you should count it as joy to go through what you're going through, to go through suffering, to go through persecution, to go through loss. Count it all joy, all these trials. It's like, really, James? And James should know better than anybody because all the stuff that's happening to these people is basically happening to James. In fact, in about 20 or 30 years from the writing of this letter, James will be himself executed by the Jewish authorities for his faith in Jesus. But James knows the real thing is harder to come by. So he starts this way. He's a principle, the first step in this process, that real faith receives hard things with joy. It receives hard things with joy. And listen to me. I want to tread really lightly here. Because as we all know, and I know, life can be truly hard. And it doesn't take much to see that, does it? In fact, right as a church, we love, we are, and are honored to, to pray with and for you through prayer requests every week. But we see okay, what, how, what financial hardship can do, what relational hardship can do what health struggles can do, family problems, what deep wounds from our, our past and how they affect our present, how hard all of those things are. And we've walked with each other, haven't we? As a family, through grief, through pain and loss and anger and confusion, everything life can throw at us. And here I am, <laughs> now it's really James's fault, but here I am telling you that part of real faith is growing to experience joy in the midst of those things. It, that might, depending on where you're at in your faith journey right now, that may border on insanity to hear me say that. And yet, what I cannot escape is that this is the consistent teaching of the New Testament. You see it over and over and over again. You see it in Paul. 
who says that we must rejoice in our sufferings. That's Romans 5. You see it in Peter, the apostle, in his letter. He tells the church to rejoice even if they are grieved by various trials. That's 1 Peter chapter 1. And of course, Jesus himself, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those. And remember, blessed could just as easily be translated happy. Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I know. I know for some of you today, that may be really hard for you to hear. For some of you today, that may be impossible for you to hear. I get it. I do. But I want to remind us of of a couple things. First, remember that the presence of joy is not the absence of grief or pain or confusion or questions. In fact, a better translation of this verse is probably pure joy instead of all joy. Consider it pure joy, meaning consider it real, authentic joy, but not only joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Remember, too, that that even neurobiologically, what we're finding is that joy is considered a supra-emotion. That means joy can be experienced, a a feeling of peace and comfort and contentment, even alongside of other emotions like anger or pain or sadness or grief. Okay, so listen to me. Real faith is not fake happiness. It's pure joy, even in the midst of those other things. This is what James is getting at. And I can tell you, as a pastor, I can tell you, I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen Jesus' followers model this principle. I've been to funerals of children, families in our church who have lost children, where there was a palpable joy even in the midst of indescribable grief. I've seen it with my own eyes. And perhaps you have too. And to anyone watching in those moments, what they're seeing is real faith. This is the kind of faith James wants for us, the joy in the funeral kind of faith. But how? Okay, how is that possible? How, How do we do that? Why on earth should we experience joy? What reason do we have to, ha- to have joy in the midst of difficulty? This is James' next point, okay? Let me read a little bit more. I'm gonna read verse two again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Okay, that word testing, um, it's a little confusing in English. Testing actually isn't my favorite uh, translation of the, of the Greek idea here. When we hear testing in English, we think of maybe a couple of things. The first, you think of like an algebra test, right? It's like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it tests whether I have the knowledge and skill to do something or not. That's what a test is. Or you think of maybe like a laboratory test, right? It's like, is there lead in this paint or not? It's yes or no, in or out. Okay, that, but that's not the, the idea here. This word testing here um, is used mostly in the context of, of metallurgy, okay? That is testing of gold or silver or precious metal for impurities that can only be exposed and removed by intense heat. That's the idea. So what is James saying? Well, he's saying that at least part of the reason we can have joy in trial, in hardship, in hard things, is because real faith believes that suffering is God's refinement. Suffering is God's refinement. Now, James is not saying that all trial and suffering 
in our lives are caused by God. Okay, that's not true. God isn't persecuting his church. He isn't torturing you with hard things. And ultimately, he doesn't long for anyone to suffer. Right? We know that his original intent was not for us to suffer. We know our destiny is to live without suffering or pain or grief or tears anymore. However, for the time being, he does allow trial. He does allow hard things. And he uses it to test our faith, to burn away the dross, to burn away the imitation part, to burn away the disobedience or the disbelief and to purify our trust in him in ways that can only happen under intense heat and pressure. And listen, James points this out. He's reminding these believers around Jerusalem, he's reminding them of this point because we can fail the test. It doesn't automatically apply. His point is, listen, God doesn't want to waste your trials he has a purpose and a process for each one of them, okay? From the mildly inconvenient tests of sitting in traffic on the way to work and making lunges and folding laundry when that's the absolute last thing you want to do to the outright persecution of, of, for your faith and anything and everything in between. God is working in those spaces, in those trials, but our response to them matters. Peter is a great example here. Before Jesus' arrest, if you remember, in his trial, Jesus prays fervently for Peter. And Luke talks to Peter about it in Luke 22. He says, Simon, Simon, which is Peter's given name, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So Jesus intercedes for Peter. He prays for Peter that he would not fail the test that he knows is coming. And that test, right, which Peter fails at first, he denies Jesus three times. He says, I never knew him. But ultimately passes in repentance and faith and restoration to Jesus, becomes one of the most important parts of his faith. Peter will never walk away again, even at the cost of his life. So important is this trial for Peter and for the early church that his denial of Christ and his repentance become uh, a keystone story in all four Gospels. Everybody talks about that. God refines Peter, and then he refines everybody else through Peter. And Peter believed that this was God's purpose so deeply, he shared that part of his story with anybody and everybody who would listen. But again, part of what makes faith Real faith is believing that God is using these trials to change us and others for good. But we don't, right? You have to believe that. We have to accept that. And again, we don't have to do that. I, maybe you've seen this too. I have seen temptation and sin and disappointment and grief. I've seen these things. Disappointment in, in, in marriages or careers or singleness completely derail people's faith. The test did not drive them to deeper intimacy with Jesus or deeper joy in, in a hardship, but actually drove them away from the faith altogether. I've seen that. You've probably seen it too. But I've also seen 
the incredible power and witness of real faith on trial. I've seen that too. In fact, I was thinking about this this week. Do you guys remember, I'll never forget this. Do you remember the, this, the awful story of Dylan Roof a few years ago? Is the, <clears throat> the young man who walked into an African-American church during a prayer meeting and they accepted him in and he appeared to be praying with them, but eventually he opened fire, killing many of them. And then later on, they found on his computer the manifesto that motivated him to do this, and it was filled with hate and racism. And it was pure evil, pure evil. It was awful. During his sentencing, the families of the victims were allowed to speak. And one woman, Felicia Saunders, she lost a son that day. And she got up on that podium, and she looked Dylan in the eye, and he, he didn't look at anybody. She looked him in the eye, and she says, I forgive you. And may God have mercy on your soul. And she meant it. Can you imagine that? The world can't imagine that. That's why almost every news outlet picked up the story. Because nobody does this. Nobody does that. But real faith does that. The one that James wants for us. Under the unimaginable pressure and heat. Under the indescribable pain and anger. She must have felt and perhaps still feels her faith shone through. And I am still humbled by that, to this day, by her faith. Real faith increasingly trusts God in his refining process, submits to him, and finds joy in that, as counterintuitive as all of that is. But why? Why do we do this? What, what is God up to in this whole thing? Last thing. Look back here, let me, let me read this again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, let it do its full work in you, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This last verse is what James is getting at. This is the culmination of this process of real faith. When we allow trial and suffering in our lives to refine our faith with God's help, we get closer to wholeness. We get closer to perfection in a very broken world. You'll remember with me, this word perfect is very important in the Bible. Whole, perfect, complete. When Jesus himself talks about you and me, when he talks about anyone who would follow him, he says that we are to be perfect as his heavenly father is perfect. Notice, it is a command of Jesus, but it is not a, it's not a threat, it's a promise. Jesus is not wagging his finger at you saying, be perfect or else. He's saying, whatever you are right now, if you follow me, if you train with me, if you obey me, I will make you as flawless and as whole and as perfect as my heavenly father. That's his goal. That's what he's after. James is saying the same thing. I love how Tish Harrison Warren put this. She's an Anglican priest. She, she wrote an article for the New York Times and she, she actually talked about James in the midst of trial. And she reminded us that God and part of the, part of the imagery James is even giving us that God is an artist of your life. He's like the sculptor of your life. And when we submit to him, 
He can use the hardships of life to shape us into something beautiful and not just beautiful, perfect. And that's what he's doing. God will not allow us to be as we are right now, not because he doesn't love us, but because he does. In fact, when God made you, when God conceived of you, when God thought about you, he saw you whole. He saw you perfect, flawless, exactly as you were meant to be. And like any good artist, he will not rest until you are who you were meant to be. He sees you perfect even now if you are in Christ. He can, he can see you in your glory. That's the biblical word for this. He can see you as you were meant to be from the very beginning. C.S. Lewis, he gets, he, he gets the idea. He talks about that if we could actually see another person in this life as God sees them, as they were meant to be, as they're destined to be, we would be tempted to worship that person. That's the glory, that's the perfection that is our destiny in Jesus. That is what real faith is for. It's where it's going to become what God intended for us to be from the very beginning. Perfect as he is perfect. This is what God wants. But for real faith to have its effect, it must be increasingly what we want too. We must want that. Because real faith longs for perfection even in the midst of brokenness. Okay, we will not achieve this perfection in this life. But we must strive for it. In every day and especially in our trials. Our obedience and temptation. Our worship in suffering. Our joy in heartache. Through those things God moves us closer and closer to what we will be. And if we make it our aim if we make it our goal to move with him, okay, even the hardest moments life has, God can use to make real faith. But we cannot do any of this without help. We cannot do this without God's help. That's why James tells us to pray for wisdom. Says, God give, may God give you divine wisdom as you navigate these trials. This is verse five. If you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So here's what I want us to do for these next few minutes. Whatever you're holding, whatever you're writing, whatever you're looking at, I want you to put it down. And I want us to pray. As we start this new series as a family, as, as we prepare to hear from God through the book of James, as we endure hardships, as Brent mentioned, whatever we brought in here today, I want us to pray for one another. So if you would bow your heads, and pray silently to God on behalf of our church. First, I want us to take a moment and I want you to pray for one another. Pray for those who are enduring trial right now. There's something going on. Something that might tempt them to walk away. Something that might tempt them to doubt. To be bitter toward God. Ask God to give them joy in the midst of their trial.
Now pray for those about to enter trial who don't know, who don't know it yet. Pray as Jesus prayed for Peter that we would not be sifted by the evil one but would be refined by God's help. Now pray for those among us who want to believe, they want to love Jesus, they want to follow him, but they just feel they can't. There's too many hard things, there's too much pain, there's too much grief, and they don't know what to do. Pray for them, that they would hear that still small voice of God reminding them of his deep love and care. And pray that they can see Jesus' love on the cross for them. And remember that he himself is not immune to grief and suffering. Pray for our church as we examine this book of James and we practice this discipline of simplicity together in the formed life and in anything and everything coming our way that we might submit to God's refining fire and long for the day when we are as whole and complete and perfect as he wants us to be. Father, hear our prayers. Holy Spirit, work among us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.